Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. David Williamson is Australia's best-known and most widely performed playwright. He was the first person outside Britain to receive the George Devine Award for The Removalists, and the awards kept coming. They include 12 Augie Awards, five Australian Film Institute Awards for Best Screenplay, the United Nations Association of Australian Media Peace Award in 1996, and in 2005, the Richard Lane Award for Services to the Australian Writers Guild. David has also received four honorary doctorates and been made an Officer of the Order of Australia. His prodigious output for the stage includes The Removalists, The Department, The Club, Travelling North, Don's Party, Brilliant Lies, Dead White Males, and the classic that we're here to talk about today, Emerald City. Emerald City is a fast-moving, wise-cracking commentary on urban mores and morals, and the rivalries and passions to be encountered on the road to success. Colin, a screenwriter, and his wife Kate, a publisher, move from Melbourne to Sydney, the Emerald City, where fame and fortune are there for the taking, but surprises are in store for them both. Sharp-edged, satirical and accusatory, Emerald City lays into the materialism of the 1980s with a razor wit. David, welcome back to Not In Print. Good to be here, Toby. Now, Emerald City, it's about a much-lauded screenwriter moving from Melbourne to Sydney, just like you did in 1979. And the parallels don't really end there, actually. You worked on a World War II miniseries called The Last Bastion that, like Coast Watchers in Emerald City, was a critical success, but not so much of a commercial one. I'm interested to hear how many other parallels there are between your own life and the life of Colin in Emerald City. Well, I think there's certainly a parallel between... um uh, the two. Um, we did move to Sydney in 79. Uh, I did work on The Last Bastion, a story about the Second World War. Um, and uh, so many of the uh, parallels uh, are there. I did draw on life to quite a degree. How much of what you then ended up telling in Emerald City was what you were actually seeing in the world that you were living in, which at the time was pretty heady? Yeah. Sydney in the uh, 80s was uh, was quite a place. Um, so, yeah, I, I did absorb what was going on and, uh, like most writers, um, uh, pick from real events and juggle them around and uh, try and make a, a viable dramatic structure. Now, there's an old saying, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it goes along the lines of if you really love a place, then you can skewer it. And you do really skewer Sydney's character in this play. And I'm going to start with a quote from Elaine, who says, no one in Sydney ever wastes time debating the meaning of life. It's getting yourself a water frontage. People devote a lifetime to the quest. You've come to a city that knows what it's about. So be warned. The only ethics is that there are no ethics. Loyalties rearrange themselves daily. Treachery is called acumen, and honest men are called fools. Now, is that is that hyperbole, David, or is that the nature of the city at the time? Well, it's a grim view of Sydney, <laughs> uh, not 
entirely unrelated to uh, to reality, especially if you're working in the film industry, which is uh, brutally pragmatic. Um, there's a lot of money involved, and uh, there's a lot hinging on success or failure. So don't expect loyalties and niceties uh, to always be observed. And I'm wondering about the notorious reputation that Sydney has for being superficial. Kate says that uh, all the media in Sydney is devoted to trivia. The places to be seen dining in, the clothes to be seen wearing, the films to be seeing. It's all glitter and image and style, New York without the intellect. But she comes around to Sydney in the end. In fact, once she finds success, she really loves it. She gets an office with a harbour view and tells Colin that she wouldn't live anywhere else. So I'm I'm wondering, does success immediately endear a place to you? Or is there something particularly fulfilling about finding success in a city that fetishises it so much? I think both. I think that uh, you cannot help uh, but like a city that uh, allows you uh, to become successful and Sydney prizes success perhaps more than any other place in Australia. So, yes, it's, it's doubly satisfying. Um, and the picture of Sydney is not entirely untrue. If you look at even our quality newspapers, an enormous amount of newsprint seems to be devoted to where you can find the best cup of coffee in Sydney or where you can find the best... Uh, falafel or the best whatever. Uh, Hunting for the best seems to be the thing that should occupy most of your life in Sydney. And hunting for the best um, doesn't always mean you're hunting for something significant. I mean, I I could stand a 98% quality coffee uh, and not spend a week looking for a 99% uh, uh, coffee. (laughs) Now, it's Elaine who says that Sydney is the Emerald City of Oz. Everyone comes here along their yellow brick roads looking for the answers to their problems, and all they find are the demons within themselves. Why do you think Sydney has that effect on people? Well... We are ambivalent at lots of levels as human beings. Uh, What we profess doesn't necessarily coincide with our real emotional needs. Um, Sydney does offer a level of success not available perhaps in any other city. It's not quite, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Um, Sydney is not as dominant on the artistic social, financial landscape as New York is in America. But nonetheless, um, it probably is the place where you most want to succeed or most people would. Now, the Melburnians listening to this will absolutely (laughs) refute that (laughs) and say Melbourne is the place to achieve. And and they're reasonably equal. But um, Sydney still has that image, that glitter, um, that beautiful harbour, that ability to act as a magnet for people who want to go to the centre of achievement in Australia. I wonder about, as a Sydney sider, a misconception that I see a lot of the time that people have of Sydney of being incredibly laid back. There's a very intense energy about the place. And Elaine actually says this as well when Colin begins to turn on Sydney in Act 2. He calls it evil, nothing but glitter, money, fashion, fads, corruption, compromise. And she cuts in and she says it's grounded by intelligence, professionalism, hard work, standards, flexibility and dedication. It's got the best and the worst. And if you choose the worst, you've only got yourself to blame. 
blame. So I do wonder about this strange idea that people have of the Harbour City with all of its glitter and glamour being a place that you can come and make it but have this lifestyle, which in fact, with rents the way they are and house prices the way they are, people are at work most nights until 7 or 8 o'clock, aren't they? Oh, yeah, it's a workaholic city. Uh, the cost of living in Sydney, as you say, is so high that you can't afford to be sitting around lazing on Bondi Beach or you won't <laughs> you won't have anywhere to live. Uh, the cost of real estate is still extraordinary. I read um, some uh, places with harbour views in, um, you know, places going for $30 million. Uh, so real estate is still the great prize and real estate with a view is the great prize, but actually earning a living is a tough business. Now, there might not be the um, the same ideological ardour as there was in Melbourne, that you had to have certain political views to make you legitimate and that making money was not a legitimate thing to do in life. That was very strongly held when I was in Melbourne. In Sydney, all uh, that um, ide- ideological overview uh, tends to disappear. You just demonstrate excellence to make money in any area that will allow you to make money um, uh, without the ideological overlay. Um, you just, pr- I think the workforce in Sydney is far more pragmatic. I have to earn money, so whatever it takes, I'll do it. How do you think Sydney's changed since you wrote the play? Well, those pressures have become even more intense because it's become an even more uh, expensive city to live in. And if you're living anywhere near the harbour, it's astronomical. So that focus on workaholism, um, you know, working till 7.30 every night, 8.30, whatever, uh, is even more pronounced in uh, a society that's even more competitive today than it was when I wrote Emerald City. I'm also interested in other things that you skewer because you do, it's a satire, so you do take aim at a lot of other stuff besides the Harbour City. Um, You also skewer the idea that intellectuals and socially conscious people are free from corruption or hypocrisy. And I just want to look at that because Kate isn't free from contradiction. She understands the importance of commercial interests. She initiates an ethnic cookbook series at work to give her commercial credibility. Nor does she shy away from elitism when it suits her. She thinks that state schools are appalling and does everything that she can to ensure that their daughter goes to one of the best private schools in Sydney. How do people reconcile those two sides of themselves? With some difficulty, uh, Toby, um, it's a perennial problem of parents who decry the privileges of the private school systems yet uh, secretly stuff their kids into them for fear that their children will not get the kind of education they need to survive uh, in the highly competitive society we're all living in. So yes, there is hypocrisy there. If all those intelligent middle-class parents did choose to put their children into the state school system and did take an active role in uh, ensuring that those schools were well-equipped and well-staffed, then um, they wouldn't need to pay $25,000, $30,000 a year. <laughs> Seeing as we're talking about money, let's talk about the relationship between art and money. Take Coast Watchers in Emerald City. Critical success, commercial failure. And in the aftermath of the ratings fizzle, Colin is vehement. If being an artist means that you have to starve, he says, then I don't want to be an artist. 
that choice is often presented as being black and white, art or money. You can't have both. And while there's an element of truth in that, I'm much more interested to hear where you think the line falls between art and money. It's a vexed question that remains and will always remain with the arts. Um, Those who espouse the values of commercialism say it's not commercialism. It's just that we are producing an entertainment that people are prepared to pay and go and see. We could not be more democratic. If it's not of worth, not of interest to them, they won't pay for it. That's a powerful argument in some respects uh, because the other argument is that there are a, uh, a group of people in society who are so, so well-versed and so sensitive to the quality in an art form that they can form a, a kind of elite who declare something to be a great work of art and we have to take their word for that, uh, that it is because their sensibilities are above way above the level of the normal population, so in a position to tell us what is great art and what isn't. And that's got its own problems too. No doubt there are people with perceptions and sensitivities who can uh, discover such art, but when you look at the art world itself, the the actual art art world, some of the discoveries uh, tend to be uh, (laughs) fairly dubious. So, uh, yeah, art is... An elitist judgment, commerce is a wallet judgment. Hmm. I'm wondering whether or not all art is inherently corruptible. And I'm going to look at Kate again because she does stand for the socially conscious voice um, in this world of fame and fortune and a lust for money, which kind of undercuts a lot of the artistic choices that Colin and Mike make and certainly that Mike and Malcolm end up making with their production company as well. Kate turns, as we've obviously talked about, at first she's proud to have the book that she's championed called Black Rage printed at all. She says it'll be lucky to sell a few thousand copies, but it's an important and passionate book and its long-term influence will be enormous. Then, when it's nominated for the Booker, she swiftly rationalises the exploitation of the story, using the specious reasoning that by turning it into a film, more copies will be sold, and by having more copies sold, it will have a longer-lasting impact. Is that just inevitable, that kind of process? Well, uh, she's right in in one sense, she's wrong in another sense. Uh, Yes, I think the lure of success and monetary success is hard to resist. A lot of people with principles abandon them when there is a chance that great amounts of money are to be made. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an old, old story and it happens all the time. I'm also interested in the great fear of failure that trails success. And take this quote again from Colin. What's happening is that I'm getting older, he says, and I'm starting to have the nightmare that every writer gets, ending my life as a deadbeat, flogging scripts to producers who don't want them. And it's not paranoia. It happens. Henry Lawson was sent to jail because he couldn't pay his debts, ended his life begging on the streets of Sydney, and did anyone care? Not one. I'm interested to hear how you cope with the peaks and troughs that are part and parcel with a career as long as yours, and do you occasionally still have nightmares of ending up like Henry Lawson? No, Toby, my nightmares are over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm 72 now, my plays are still getting produced, my plays are still being revived. 
I'm extremely fortunate because art has a huge component of fashion about it. The judgments made by the elite about what art is change rapidly according to fashion. So to stay in more or less fashion for a long while is very difficult in the arts and I've managed to thankfully ride the peaks and troughs and I think the um, the reason I've been able to do that is that people, audiences have consistently come to my plays. They've never melted away. So as long as audiences keep coming I have that power to still create and I'm still in the fortunate position of knowing that the next play I write is going to be produced which is... Um, which is a luxury not afforded uh, all that many other playwrights in Australia. So I've had a very charmed or blessed life. When did those fears abate for you? Because you, it seems like Colin is mirroring a lot of things that you might have been feeling at the time. When did you let go of that? Oh, not till relatively late in life. Uh, although the fear that replaced the economic fear was the fear that I wouldn't get my plays produced and to me, it's not. it never has really been about money. It's been about the thrill of writing something, uh, getting a good production on stage and seeing that piece of work relating to the lives of the audience. Uh, that's, that's the real buzz. And so um, many years ago, I realized I was in a position not to have to worry too much about money, but the other fear that... I would no longer have the great thrill of seeing my work connecting uh, was was real because theatre companies, there are the big theatre companies are just as much about fashion as anything else and the argument that if you put a Williamson play on it's going to attract an audience is countered by the argument that uh, we want to see more fashionable or more younger uh, writers, uh, more artistically acceptable works. We don't want social comedies anymore. Recently, um, one director told me, well, you're unfortunate, David. The big companies don't do comedies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow I've still rem uh, remained able to get my plays done. And so that even that fear, which is not the economic one, it's the artistic one, um, hasn't materialised. Is that why you think the art and money push-pull is, is so difficult? Because if you go over into the realm of money being the main driver for what you do, that it inevitably means you are going to have to lose that connection that you have with an audience because you're just going to be trying to feed the production company what they want or feed the star what they demand in order to be part of the project? No, I, I, I more or less, uh, Toby, have always written what I want to write. The fear has been that the big subsidised companies are almost commercial theatres because the level of subsidy is so relatively low now that they have to um, find plays that attract audiences but they don't want to see themselves as commercial operations. They want to see themselves as artistic organisations, and so they are increasingly driven to do classic plays with, with film stars in the, in the main roles to attract the audiences to be a commercial product, but, but to be artistically viable at the same time. They don't want to be seen to be commercial. So, in a sense, this is driven a lot of Australian players off our subsidised stages because new Australian writing takes a while to attract an audience 
And in some ways, we seem to be drifting back to the days when the theatre was about reviving masterpieces with great, uh, well-known actors in the in in the lead roles. What do you think we lose because of that? We lose our own voice, our own stories. Uh, it used to, there are a lot of uh, terrific young writers around, but they never get onto our main stages because of this phenomena that um, the subsidies are so low. Uh, the theatre companies won't take that risk. So they're uh, confined to the very small theatres and not very many of them uh, any longer. I think the Griffin is the only one in Australia that does a sole uh, Australian diet of um, of plays. Mm. So the urgent priority we had in the 70s of establishing a, an Australian repertoire, telling Australian stories with Australian actors, has sort of flown out the back door. And we're back to the, in many ways, we're back to the 60s uh, with uh, star power and Ibsen um, and uh, Chekhov uh, and Shakespeare drawing the crowds. Do you think that's a peak and trough situation as well? And we'll come back to that. No, we won't come back. We won't come back to the era when Australian plays were forty percent of the repertoire of the subsidised com- companies. We will never go back to that because uh, of the relative pittance that. Subsidy is given. Uh, subsidy for the theatre companies uh, is at a very low level now. It's about nine percent of the big companies. It used to be forty percent. So they could put on Australian plays and take a risk. Unless the funding levels go up again, we're doomed to um, what I call um, museum piece theatre, if you like. Do audiences really not have an appetite for Australian plays? Of course they do. Of course they do. If they are promoted as heavily uh, and if our major stars didn't always search for the great classical roles, if our if our great stars actually appeared in Australian roles, uh, um, we'd have the audiences uh, just the same. Let's talk about Mike and Malcolm's production company. I wanted to talk about it to ask a question about the state of the local film industry, actually. They set out to create a company that will attract large-scale American projects to Australian shores, and that wasn't really happening at the time that the play was written. We've been going about it the wrong way, Mike says. We bring over a few faded American stars and plonk them in a cliche-ridden Australian wank and think that we've made something international. We'll never make true international product that way. There's no reason why Australia couldn't become one of the world's great production houses. And it kind of has, actually. Um, It attracts large-scale Hollywood productions over here with good tax breaks, obviously. But seeing as that was rather prescient of you, um, I'm interested to hear your take on the changes in the local industry that you've seen since writing Emerald City. Yes, everything I predicted did come true. (laughs) The writing was on the wall, but it certainly came true. We built big studios, not with the intention of making Australian films, never with that intention, with the intention of having a, a lower cost structure than Hollywood or Canada or wherever to attract big overseas blockbuster Hollywood productions to give our technicians employment and to give our actors small roles in international films. Uh, that was considered, that was the motive right from the start. It was never to pr- promote or produce Australian stories, it was to become part of Hollywood. Because the dazzle of Hollywood, um, the ultimate commercial centre of entertainment in the world, puts stars in the eyes of our politicians and uh, uh, they'd rather be photographed with uh, Jack Nicholson or someone than 
on an Australian studio floor than uh, anything. I mean, the, the Hollywood system, which, by the way, produces seven out of eight films which fail financially, uh, still manages to promote, promote itself as the uh, entertainment that, that all the world consumes, and by and large we do. It's a fairly despairing uh, operation to go into your local video store and see anything from Hollywood that you'd really want to see, but uh, still... It's very hard for Australian stories to compete with that, and the takeover that I um, predicted has absolutely happened. Uh, our films are ghettoized; they're small budget, they're never promoted, even if they're excellent films. And I've seen some excellent little Australian films recently. They die at the box office because the producers are so exhausted finding a production budget that there's absolutely nothing left over to promote the film. And the same cry goes up, oh, we don't want Australian stories because they're no good. Well, a lot of these small films have been very good. And a lot of the great Australian actors and uh, people in the industry leave because the work yeah. is overseas. Do you, do you feel like the changes locally have been good in that way because we've actually been able to produce incredible talent or is it a brain drain? Well, the thought that... yeah. Uh, the sole purpose of producing great actors is that they uh, have a stellar career in Hollywood. Who can blame them for wanting a stellar career? That's where the money is, that's where the notoriety is, that's where the fame is, but it's a little sad from an Australian perspective because they're involved in telling American stories because the Hollywood films tell American stories 98% of the time. Our voice, our accents never get to be heard. Uh, But in a strange way, it satisfies politicians. They will fund an Australian film industry and an Australian network of actor training centres in the hope that some of these actors will become international stars and they can bask in the glory of uh, having an Oscar winner um, that's an Australian I would rather bask in the glory of uh, of great Australian actors being Australians and telling Australian stories, but that's a that's a lost hope. How would Colin have survived in today's landscape? Well, um, Colin would be struggling. He he may go to um, to Hollywood as I did for a time to um, to write American screenplays and certainly earn money. I. Never got any of them produced, and it was totally dispiriting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was an awful environment because um, the writer was just there to be told what to write by a a whole series of uh, producers, the director, even the actors uh, would all have their input. And so you became a sort of typist for, um, for other people's idea of what the story should be. Is there more respect for the writer in the theatre? Is that why you've stuck oh, yeah. by it? Look, I would be, I, I'd, I'd be loopy now and paranoid and gibbering if I had to uh, have earned my living uh, from film. The writer, thanks to William Shakespeare and Chekhov and a few of the old lads, the writer has the ultimate respect. All but the new generation of directors believe that the writer is important and um, that they're there to make 
the writer's unique skills best utilised by actors and stage. Now there, the, even in stage now, there is a whole new direction of directors that think they can write better than the writers and uh, who are rewriting. Uh, why anyone would wa- want to rewrite a masterpiece like The Cherry Orchard uh, um, beggars belief, but uh, it's happening out there. Lastly, I want to talk about our right to Australian stories. You've dedicated yourself to telling them for a long time now, and Emerald City is an Australian story about a group of people who tell Australian stories. We've got screenwriters, producers, publishers. And that's why I want to read this quote from Colin. What's so special about being Australian, he says. Why bother whether we have our own stories or not? My only answer is that we have a right to them. Now, he has his own explanation for what that right is, but I'd like to see if you agree with him. What right do we have to Australian stories, David? Well, first... We're all human beings, and human beings have strong universal qualities. We love, we hate, we uh, we feel the pain of rejection, we feel the pain of failure. Our emotional systems are fairly universal, but then our societies shape our specific behaviours in very particular ways that are also interesting. So, yes, um, storytelling is universal because we have... Um, common emotions, but each society does put a stamp on its own uh, people to emphasise certain ways of behaviour, certain social mores. Uh, And I think it's interesting for a writer to be immersed in a particular culture and get the specifics right, as well as the universals. I think um, it was Flaubert who said, all great art is provincial. And he didn't mean by that it was boring. He meant, okay, if you get everything right, you'll get the universals right, and you'll also get the specifics right, and the story will wing totally true. So I think Australia has a, a set of specifics that are worth exploring, and I've enjoyed exploring them. And, um, and yes, um, you can relate to a, a great French story, a great... Uh, Norwegian story, a great American story. Let's not pretend you can't. Uh, But there's some extra special kick about relating to a well-told Australian story that gets the specifics as well as the universals right. Thank you so much for sitting down to talk to me about Emerald City. It's a pleasure, Toby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.